0: Joshua, chapter 10. We're reading the first 15 verses. The reaction of the Canaanite peoples in general to the early victories of Israel, those over Jericho and I, had been briefly described in the opening verses of chapter 9. As chapter 10 opens we have described the reaction of a specific group of Canaanite cities, those located nearest to the Israelite invasion force. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hohem, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of jarmut to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. His target, uh, the king of Jerusalem was not the Israelite army per se, encamped at Gilgal, but Gibeon, the capital of the four-city confederation, that had made peace with the Israelites. Gibeon was located a few miles northwest of Jerusalem, so Adonai Zedek and the four kings of cities to Jerusalem's southwest understandably considered an Israelite ally in their immediate environs to constitute a deadly threat. This is, by the way, the first time in the Bible that we encounter the name Jerusalem. The city itself was mentioned before, as you remember, as early as Genesis, uh, but under the name Salem. Still, at this point, no one knew the importance the city would eventually acquire under King David centuries later. In any case, Adonai Zedek could read a map. The location of Gibeon and its allies, um, together with Jericho and Ai, if now all considered in the Israelite camp, meant that Joshua had nearly cut Canaan in half, separating the north from the south, leaving him free, as any military commander wants to be, to destroy his enemy piecemeal. The term Amorite, as we noticed before, can refer in general to all the inhabitants of Canaan or to the specific people uh, who inhabited the central mountain ridge of the country, just like the word America today. An American could literally be anybody who lived in the Western Hemisphere, North America and South America, but it is now more typically used of the citizens of the United States. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. As we noted last time, one of the stipulations of the covenant that Joshua had made with the Gibeonites was apparently that each would come to the aid of the other if uh, either were threatened. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. This is, you remember, the promise that the Lord had made to Joshua before they Israel even entered the promised land. But as you and I know all too well, the Lord has to repeat his promises to us, and that is what he does throughout his word. When he encourages his people, the Lord typically does not unveil some new truth they had never heard before. He rather reaffirms the promises that he has made to them many times before, promises that take on a special power and significance due to the circumstances we find ourselves in. So Joshua came upon them suddenly. Having marched up all night from Gilgal. As elsewhere, in fact, as everywhere else in the Bible, the assurance of victory by the power of God, which the Lord had just promised to Joshua, did not stifle ingenuity or effort. It stimulates those things. The fact that Yahweh promised Joshua victory in battle didn't prevent Joshua from using all his wiles as a general his army made a forced night march so that Israel could fall by surprise upon the Amorites in an early morning attack. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. Now, there is no question that Yahweh is the subject of the verb translated through them into panic. But the English versions differ as to whether it is Yahweh or Israel who is the subject of the next three verbs, struck, pursued, and struck. Most of the commentators I read think both the grammar and the context favor Yahweh as the subject of all four verbs. So, the emphasis in verse 10 falls even more powerfully than otherwise it would on Yahweh himself winning the battle against the Amorite kings. Throughout the Bible, the Lord is described not only as the tender shepherd of his people, the loving father of his people, the savior of his people, but also the king who defends them in battle, the warrior who defeats their enemies. The geographical notices in verse 10 suggests that the Amorites were chased some 20 miles, suffering losses all along the path of their retreat. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones, Then the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So the Lord put the finishing touches on the route with a ferocious hailstorm that caught the Amorite army in the open. In the following verses now, the remainder of what we are going to read, verses 12 to verse 15, we're going to have described in another way what happened that day. It is not a continuation of the account, it is a repetition of the account. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ejelon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. Now, there are a number of books, as you know, that are referred to in the Bible uh, that have been lost. Not books of the Bible, but books that are mentioned in the Bible. The book of Jasher is one of these, mentioned again in 2 Samuel one eighteen. The reference to it here is meant to confirm the account that has been given, but also, perhaps, as the source of the lines that follow. There is a great deal of debate about exactly what the book of Jasher might have been. Was it a book of poems, of hymns, or psalms, or perhaps... Was it a book of hymns and psalms with some historical context provided? That would account, for example, for the odd statement in verse 15, a statement that is, re- that is repeated verbatim in verse 43 at the end of the chapter and which is obviously out of chronological order, Here in verse 15, Joshua obviously didn't break off the engagement, return the army to Gilgal, then come back and finish the battle. But if our verse 15 were part of a quotation from the book of Jasher, that might explain its place here. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought. For Israel. So is so Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Father in heaven, we have a very famous passage of the Word of God before us this morning, full of interest for a variety of reasons, but one in particular. Help us, O God, to enter in to what we have been told here in Your Word with understanding and appreciation. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I might have brought this subject up when we considered Israel's crossing the Jordan River on dry land. That was certainly a miracle. We might have considered it when we considered the sudden tumbling of the walls of Jericho. That was certainly a miracle. But I decided to consider the subject of miracles here, in Joshua chapter 10, for several reasons. First, this is the last of the miracles in Joshua. In fact, the last of miracles in the Bible for a long time. And explaining that, it is essential that we define our terms. In the Bible... A miracle is a supernatural intervention in history of the power of God, an intervention that is objective and self-authenticating. By that I mean, while we often use the term much more loosely in our speech and writing as Christians, we may use the term to describe any splendid providence of God, any surprising provision the Lord makes for us, any startling answer to our prayers, that's not what the Bible means by miracle or sign or wonder. A miracle is an event as accessible to the unbeliever as to the believer. It is not an event subject to interpretation. Take the miracles of the Lord Jesus, for example. The people, and especially the religious leadership who refused to believe in Jesus, knew very well that he had healed the sick, had given sight to the blind, and had raised the dead. They never denied because they couldn't deny the astonishing power that he had displayed, the events that had occurred. They attributed his power to the devil instead of to God, but they never denied the power itself. We've already read that the Canaanites knew very well what had happened in Egypt, the plagues that had devastated the most powerful nation on earth, the crossing of the Sea of Reeds and the destruction of the Egyptian army in the sea as it followed uh, Israel through the parted waters and so on. These were events in history, the report of which had spread over the entire world of the eastern Mediterranean. That is a biblical miracle, objective and self-authenticating. As Jesus said more than once, miracles won't necessarily by themselves produce faith, such as the hardness of the human heart, but neither can the supernatural character of the event be denied, nor is it denied. That, by the way, is the first and the greatest problem with the claim that miracles are occurring in the world today, whether made by a charlatan TV preacher or by earnest and sincere Christian believers who feel that God's power ought to be on display in the world in this way. The miracles that are supposed to be occurring do not have this objective and self-authenticating character as the biblical miracles do. What the believer calls a miracle, the unbeliever calls a coincidence, or worse, a sham. I have long said to you that you don't need to worry about missing out on miracles. If that kind of divine power is unleashed in the world again, you will know it because everybody will know it. You'll read about it on the front pages of the New York Times. Now, the editors of the newspaper may attribute the power to aliens or perhaps uh, to the devil instead of to God. But that supernatural events have occurred, they will not be able to deny and will not deny. But the so-called miracles alleged to be occurring today very often do not convince even most of the church still less the unbelieving world, that supernatural power has actually been unleashed in the world. And as I said, miracles of this kind occur sparingly in biblical history, almost exclusively in three short periods of time. The Exodus, the wilderness, and the very beginning of the conquest, ending here in Joshua 10, That's the first group. The second, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And third, the ministry of Jesus. And the first years of the ministry of his apostles. There are a few exceptions. There are, for example, a few miracles reported in the book of Daniel. We know that John the Baptist did not perform a miracle by the express witness of Holy Scripture. And we know, and at least it seems very clear, that by the end of the apostolic era, even considerably earlier when the Apostle Paul wrote his letters to Timothy and Titus, miracles were no longer a feature of the life of the early church. There is no really satisfactory evidence that miracles have ever occurred since. Well, this miracle here in Joshua 10 is the final miracle of that first of three periods, You will notice, by the way, that each of those three periods of miracle working was a turning point in the history of divine revelation, the disclosure of God's truth and will to mankind. In the first period, the miracles accredited the ministry of Moses, who gave us the law of God and the first five books of the Bible, the foundation of everything that will follow. In the second period, the miracles accredited the ministries of Elijah and Elisha at the headwaters of the prophetic movement that would give us the rest of the Old Testament. And, of course, Jesus and his apostles were to give us the New Testament. Peter actually says in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2 that miracles serve to accredit someone who has come from God. In particular, the Lord's miracles accredited him as someone from God himself. They did more than that, of course. They also served as powerful signs of the salvation that Jesus had brought. They were pictures of a still greater healing, a still more wonderful resurrection. But in the Bible, miracles are always associated with the ministry of a figure, a prophetic figure, a figure of biblical revelation. Joshua is, as the book of Joshua has taken pains to indicate so far, a second Moses. He would be the last for many, many centuries to come. Nevertheless, it's a simple fact of biblical revelation that miracles were rare and were never intended to be the general experience of believers. We live by faith and not by sight. Most believers in biblical times never witnessed a miracle, just as you and I have never witnessed a miracle. And as I said, after this miracle in Joshua 10, the Israelites would not see such a thing for centuries to come. Prophets might have visited, been visited of God privately, and he might bless his people in extraordinary ways, but no miracles in the ordinary biblical sense or definition of the term. The second reason I chose to consider the question of miracles here is because of an interesting problem with the account of the miraculous that is highlighted here. By problem I do not mean whether or not we can believe that the narratives of miracles in the Bible are true. As C.S. Lewis reminds us, the miracles are in fact a retelling in small letters of the very same story that is written across the whole world in letters too large for some to see. That is, once you accept the biblical doctrine of creation, the biblical doctrines of God and his providence, the difficulty of believing in the miraculous melts away. These are the works of the one who made the world and by whose love and power it is being saved from sin and death. These are not the effect of some alien power, some strange and otherworldly power. This is the work of the one who made the world, loves the world, and who is in the world. And that's all the more the case when someone stops and considers how chaste the biblical accounts of the miraculous actually are nothing like what you get in mythological accounts how unashamed the bible is in its acknowledgement of how stunning these events were in their time and were to everyone but also how comparatively rare biblicals are or miracles are in the biblical history now by this problem with the miraculous I mean that believers, real believers, reading the Bible, people who are de- determined to defend the miraculous element in biblical revelation, do not always agree as to what the Bible says actually happened. We encounter such a disagreement in regard to the first plague visited in Egypt did the waters of the river Nile actually turn into hemoglobin? Or is the use of the term blood there actually a reference to the red color of the Nile, still in those days and still today often referred to as the red Nile, resulting from the silt carried down from the Ethiopian highlands? We encounter it also in regard to the flood. Something some of you will be thinking about because of the new movie with Russell Crowe about the flood. Was the flood worldwide or was it more local or regional, an event? Believers have been disagreeing about that and arguing about that question on the basis of what the Bible actually says for a very long time now. Now, that there is a typical biblical miracle recorded in this history is beyond doubt and no faithful reader of God's word doubts it. A mid-summer hailstorm would have been a great rarity. Most hail falls in that part of the world in the winter. And of course, hail so large that it kills that too Unusual, though hail certainly has fallen in the size of softballs, even grapefruit, and has killed people, even some in the United States. But in other parts of the world, even more so, single hailstorms have killed hundreds of people at once. In 1986, 92 people were killed in Bangladesh by hailstones the size of grapefruit that each weighed a kilogram A hailstorm in India in 1888 killed 230 people in a matter of moments. This miracle, therefore, is quite like the miracles we find in this period of biblical miracles, from the first nine of the ten plagues in Egypt, to the Lord using the wind to part the waters of the Sea of Reeds, or or to use a landslide to dam up the Jordan River. The miraculous element in the plagues, all of which but the last, the tenth, involved phenomena that were characteristic of uh, nature in or life in the Nile Delta in those days. The water turning red, the frogs, the flies, and so on. The miraculous element was the timing and the intensity. So too the landslide at Adam, the dried up, the Jordan River bed, so that Israel could cross into the promised land. Here, too, it was the timing and the intensity of the storm that was its miraculous element, as well as its precise location. A natural event was turned into the hand of God, fighting on behalf of his people. Now, don't mistake me, not all miracles are like this. The Lord's healing miracles were certainly not No one ever recovered from leprosy in those days. When the Lord healed the leper, that was an utterly unprecedented display of divine power. Nobody could have called that, nobody did call that a coincidence. And uh, so with his raising of the dead, that was sheer divine power doing what otherwise could never have been done what otherwise never would have occurred, and everyone understood that at the time. But as I say, the miracles of the hailstorm here, or the miracle of the hailstorm here in Joshua 10, is very like the other miracles of this period. In fact, we could look at some of the wilderness miracles, the locusts and the quail and so on, and find them much the same in this respect. Natural forces were employed. It was the timing, it was the intensity of the event that made it a miracle, a supernatural intervention. Now, I say all of that because the other miracle, often supposed to be here, is not like that at all. In fact, if indeed God added a day, if he somehow stopped the earth in its rotation and kept the sun in the sky... For some extra hours, as many have supposed he did, this miracle is the most astonishing and unprecedented miracle of all, utterly unprecedented in the Bible. Some of you, I'm sure, will have heard the story that I heard when I was a boy and that was exciting to hear for me and for many others. The story has circulated in a variety of forms. Always a bad sign. Anyway, the basic claim is that astronomers, in their calculations of the positions of planetary bodies, have discovered a missing day. In one such account, it was a Professor Pickering of the Harvard Observatory that traced the missing day back to Joshua. Actually, his was more precise He got most of the day from Joshua. The rest was accounted for by the backward motion of the shadow on the steps in Isaiah's day. In another account, a similar discovery of the missing day was made by high-speed computers at a government astronomical laboratory. It's a story that is still being repeated, the details changing in its various renditions, but it has never been verified. People who have attempted to track down its origin, have always, been, uh, has, have always failed to confirm any of the claims. It's the sort of story we nowadays would refer to as an internet legend. Be wary of stories like these, stories that seem too good to be true. They bring discredit on the Bible and on those of us who believe the Bible. They confirm the skeptics claim that Christian believers are rubes rather easily duped whose views are akin to those who believe that the earth is flat. The Bible doesn't deserve this discredit. Its account of the miraculous is sober and credible. And that leads me to alert you uh, to something else. You may find this a little bit more difficult to accept after having read Joshua chapter 10 in a certain way all your life, but hear me out. The fact is, there are a good number of biblical scholars, men who hold to the inerrancy of the Bible, who have no difficulty believing the history of the miraculous, as it is reported in the Word of God, who nevertheless do not believe that on that day the sun stood still in the sky. Robert Dick Wilson, the stalwart Presbyterian and professor at Princeton Theological Seminary in the early 20th century, was a founding member of the faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Wilson devoted his life to the defense of the reliability, the historical reliability of the Hebrew Bible. He was famed for his prodigious scholarship. Along the way, he learned some 45 different languages, many of them the ancient languages of the biblical world. He was particularly a defender of the miraculous events reported in the Old Testament. He once said in one of his classes, After studying God's word for over 50 years, I have come to the conclusion that no man on earth knows enough to claim that there is a single inaccuracy of the original scriptures Of the Old and New Testaments. I say all of that to assure you of that man's loyalty to the Word of God. But in an article published in 1918 in the prestigious Princeton Theological Review, Professor Wilson, whose scholarship was acknowledged by friend and foe alike, argued that Joshua 10, verses 12 to 14, did not, in fact, describe. A Divinely Ordered Suspension of the Laws of Gravity. It is an article replete with highly technical discussion of the meaning of Hebrew words, of the meaning of similar terms in cognate languages, Babylonian in particular, none of which I am competent to evaluate. But in Professor Wilson's view, the day was not lengthened. If you consult the commentaries, as I have, you'll discover that there are a variety of interpretations of these three verses, verses 12 to 14. I'm not going to bury you in the details, most of which concern arcane discussions of the meaning of Hebrew words, the proper translation of some Hebrew phrases, and the nature of Hebrew literary art. But let me give you a summary There is, of course, the traditional view that the sun actually stood still. The earth stopped rotating, or in some other way, the Almighty held the daylight for longer than its normal duration. The creator of heaven and earth, the one who fixed the heavenly bodies in their places, could certainly have done that. It would have been without question the most colossal nature miracle that has ever occurred. Another view is that the sunlight lingered perhaps through some atmospheric refraction. Another view is that there is not more sunlight, but less, that the sunlight was blocked by a solar eclipse. However, we now know from astronomical calculations that there was no solar eclipse at any time during the year's believing scholarship assigns to Israel's conquest of the promised land. Another view is that the passage is figurative. They argue that we should take the poetry in verses 12 and 13 as we understand other very similar expressions of the divine power at work in descriptions of God's defeating of Israel's enemies. Here, for example, is such a description in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. Nobody thinks that is a literal description of things that happened. It is a poetic reflex on the great power of God unleashed on behalf of his people and against their enemies. On this view, we have in verses 12 and 13 in poetry a description of the battle in cosmic theological terms. Something that is actually quite common In the Old Testament, we would have here something like what we have in Judges, chapter five, verse 20, where Israel's victory in another battle against the Canaanites is described in this way. From heaven, the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. Those who take this view characteristically also set the last verse or the last sentence of verse 13 in italicized type to indicate that it is poetry as well. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set about a whole day. From sun stand still in verse 12 then to the end of verse 13, the only prose is the statement, is it not written in the book of Jasher, such figurative language of which there is a great deal in the Bible and in contexts exactly like these was never meant to describe literal astronomical phenomena. In this view, verses 12 to 14 are a poetic reflex on the account of the same battle that is described to us in verses 6 through 11. One important detail that weighs with me is that, as virtually now everyone agrees, the references to Gibeon and Aijalon in verse 12 indicate that the sun is in the east and the moon has still not set in the west. In other words, if a specific time of day when Joshua prayed this prayer is being indicated, it is morning. Early morning, not evening. This would make much less likely a request from Joshua to extend daylight so that the the, the battle might be prolonged. Most of those who believe that the miracle here was to stop the sun in the sky assume that Joshua's request to do so came late in the afternoon or early in the evening as he saw the daylight disappearing and his chance of total victory slipping away. But the actual statement of verse 12, if taken not as poetry, but literally has Joshua making the request in the morning at the beginning of the battle, not in the evening near its end. Another point worth noting is that the extraordinary character of the day is said in verse 14 not to be the extra length of the day, but that the Lord heeded Joshua's prayer and fought for Israel in my view this is far the more likely way to read verses 12 through 14 as a poet a poetic reflection on the battle more literally described in verses 6 to 11 you have that same order of a prose account and then a poetic reflection in other places in the Old Testament for example the song of Moses In Exodus 15 is a repetition in poetry of the history of Israel's crossing the Sea of Reeds in the previous chapter. So there is a miracle in Joshua 10, the miracle of the hailstorm, perfectly timed to fall upon the Amorites as they retreated, perfectly situated to hammer the enemy but to leave Israel untouched and sufficiently intense To destroy the remnants of the Canaanite army. Yahweh fought for his people. He sent their enemies into panic. He struck them. He confused them. And he has the power to grant us similar victories in our lives. We should do as Joshua did. And we should trust his promise to give us victory. We should rely upon his extraordinary power, which he promises to wield on our behalf. The cosmos, the poet says, the cosmos, the stars in the heavens, the planets in the rotation, they are on our side because they belong to God who made them. Amen.